this morning. I'm very excited to be able to start this sermon series in the book of Ephesians. I've been planning for a good few months and it's finally arrived. So just before we get into the book, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to open up your word over the next few months, in particular this letter of Ephesians. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us and guide us and may open the eyes of our heart to all the blessings that you have poured out to us in Christ and that we may be able to respond by the prompting of the Holy Spirit to live lives worthy of the calling that we have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Paul, the great apostle, is in prison. And from his cell, he decides he's going to write three letters. Uh, The first letter is to the Christians, to the church in the city of Colossae. And the second letter is to a believer, Philemon, who worships in that church. And the third letter is to the church in Ephesus. And he dispatches these three letters via a good friend. And we, of course, we have all three in our Bible And it's the letter to the church in Ephesus that is going to be our focus. So why is Paul in prison? I mean, why is he languishing in a Roman prison cell? Well, he tells us himself in Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 19. He says, Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. See, Paul has been fearlessly proclaiming the gospel. Repent, come to Christ, and you will have eternal life. And because he was doing this fearlessly and effectively, he finds himself in jail. Now, while he's in jail, why would he write a letter to the church in Ephesus? What's the background here? Well, there's a lot of background, and it's found in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, Paul begins his third missionary journey and arrives in the city of Ephesus. There he finds 12 believers, 12 believers of John the Baptist. Anyway, after they are filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul stays there and a wonderful ministry flourishes. As was his strategy, he would spend the first amount of time, his first phase of mission was preaching in a Jewish synagogue. And he would do this until he was thrown out. And then Paul would continue to share the gospel in people's homes and in public places. In Acts 19, we read that he hired a public lecture hall for two years. And then regularly, weekly, he would preach the gospel to all he heard. And he was successfully, hugely successful. In fact, Ephesus was probably the center of his most successful missionary endeavor so successful that people were turning away from idols in their droves and it was impacting the ephesian economy ephesus was the third greatest city in the roman empire after rome and the egyptian city of alexandra and what happened was that people would flock to the city of ephesus to worship their chief god artemis and of course this brought in a huge income People would make idols and shrines and sell them to the pilgrims. There was the hospitality and and the festivals and and all sorts of economic benefit. But because so many people were coming to Christ and rejecting idol worship, the city's economy was taking a hit. And we see this in the words of Paul's enemy 
Demetrius. Demetrius was a silversmith who would make shrines and idols for a living. In Acts chapter 19, verses 25, he calls together all the workmen and related trades, and he says this, Men, you know we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus, and practically the whole province of Asia. Now in the Bible where you see the word Asia, think modern day Turkey. But the point is that even his enemies are saying how successful he has been and that large numbers, not only in the city of Ephesus, but in the whole region, are, in Demetrius's word, being led astray. Uh, we would say they're being led into the kingdom. Anyway, Demetrius The crowd that gathers turns into a mob, an angry mob that want Paul's life. Now, Paul, he was quite keen to get and speak to the crowd, but his his Christian friends bundled him out of town and said for his own safety he must continue. And so Paul continues on his missionary journey and preaches the gospel in other cities. And once his journey comes to end and he wants to travel back to Jerusalem, he hasn't got time to visit the city of Ephesus. So he calls the elders and says, meet me in the seaport of Miletus, about three days' journey from Ephesus. And there we read in Acts chapter 20, Paul gives this wonderful, heartfelt final speech to the Ephesian elders. The Holy Spirit has impressed upon Paul that this is the last time that he will see them. And at the end of the speech, we read in in Acts chapter 20, verse 36, when he had said this, he knelt down with all of the elders and prayed. They all wept as they embraced and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that would they never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And so we see here this wonderful mutual sense of affection. So this then is the two reasons that Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesians. Because of their shared history and the wonderful ministry that flourished there for two to three years, but also this mutual sense of affection. So this is why Paul writes the letter. And this is behind the opening words in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful introduction from the Apostle to people who he knows and who has this lovely mutual affection with. Now next week we're going to start to explore in depth this first paragraph that then follows. But for now that's the background of why Paul is writing the letter. Now how has Paul structured his letter? How has he set out his encouragement and his teaching? Well, the book of Ephesians is divided into two sections very clearly. The first three chapters talk about the wealth of the church and the second three chapters talk about the work of the church. So the wealth of the church is the first section. And we see this in verse 3, the very first verse after his greetings. talks about the wealth of the church. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Isn't that amazing? We as individuals and we as a church have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. This is the wealth of the church. And so for the next three chapters, 
Paul expounds and describes and delights in this wealth that we have in the church. So that's the first section. The second section section is the the work of the church. And we see this clearly again in the opening verse of that second section of chapter 4, verse 1. The work of the church. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So what is the work of the church? To live a life worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up everything for us. And again, for the next three chapters, Paul describes and shows what it looks like to live a life worthy of our calling, the work of the church. So that's how the the letter of Ephesians is structured. The wealth of the church and the work of the church. And this accurately describes the grammar of the gospel. Now, what's the, the grammar of the gospel? Well, this is a quite an important, very important concept to understand. And I'm grateful to the preacher Alistair Begg for the term grammar of the gospel. He's a Scottish, originally a Scottish preacher based in the States. And if you can listen to his sermons online, I can encourage you to do that. But Alistair Begg uses a term the grammar of the gospel. And what does that mean? Well, God loved us first, and because he loves us, we respond. That's how it works. God shows his undeserved mercy, and then we respond. And so we see this here, that we receive the wealth of Jesus Christ. In the heavenly realm, every spiritual blessing in Christ is ours. And out of that, we respond with the work of Christ, the work of Christ. And we see this grammar of the gospel all through the Bible. And we see that uh, Romans, in Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, the grammar of the gospel. You see, at just the right time, and when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8, Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see the grammar of the gospel? Christ dies for us first, and then we respond. And we see this in the Old Testament, most famously in the freedom of slavery, the rescue of slavery of God's people out of Egypt. And so we have this sense where God's people are rescued first and the law is given second. So you see, God did not say to the Israelites in slavery, here are the Ten Commandments. Once you've got the Ten Commandments sorted, then I will rescue you from slavery. That's not how the grammar of the gospel works. It works like this. God rescues the Israelites out of slavery and then he gives them the law so that they know how to respond. Rescue first, law second. Now, other religions, all other religions, get this wrong. In all other religions, you have to do the work first. You have to go through a series of steps. You have to get to a certain standard. You have to follow a whole bunch of laws. And then once you have done that, then you are accepted. Maybe. That is not the grammar of the gospel. It's loved and accepted first. Out of that love and acceptance, we respond. And how do we respond? Well, First and foremost, we respond to the good news of the gospel by coming to Christ. We are saved, and we call that experience 
conversion. Now this whole salvation, being saved, is a strong theme that runs through the letter of, of Ephesians. So let's spend a bit of a time looking at how we are saved. Well, for the Israelites, how were they saved? Well, they were on the Egyptian side of the Red Sea and they were slaves. Then God parted the waters and they escaped through the Red Sea and when they were on the other side, they were set free. So Egyptian side, they were slaves. The desert side, they were set free and they're passing through the waters. That was how they were saved. That was their conversion experience. And for us, it's very similar. We are over here. We are slaves to sin and death. And then through coming to Christ, God opens up the way for us to be saved. And so now we are on the other side. Like the Egyptians, we are set free. And of course, baptism symbolizes us. Baptism, we go under the water of baptized, and that symbolizes us being slaves to sin and death. We are under the waters of baptism. We die with Christ, and when we come out of the waters of baptism, then that symbolizes us being set free. And now, baptism is not where conversion happens, but baptism symbolizes our conversion. Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. We ask Christ into our lives at some point of time, and we are converted. That's the process. So now we have salvation, and in obedience, we are baptized. And so, salvation. From Ephesians' perspective, what does salvation look like? Well, if we turn to chapter 1, verse 4. For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. So how are we saved? Well, Ephesians chapter 4 says that first and foremost, we are chosen. And not only are we chosen, but we are chosen since the beginning of time. So it's not like God's minding his business in heaven and, and Douglas decides, oh, well, I'll shoot up a prayer and say, God, I'd like to be saved. And It's not like God looks down and says, Douglas, oh, well, I hadn't really thought about that. Yes, welcome. You know, it's not like that. God chose you before the creation of time. He did not chose you last week or when you were born, but before creation, you were chosen. Why were you chosen? Out of love, the end of verse 4. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. In love, Christ chose you before time. But notice, in love, he predestined. Predestined. (laughs) Predestination. Now, there's a big word. There's a controversial word. What does predestined mean? Well, predestined means not only were you chosen before time, but that it was a given that you would accept. That's what predestination means. Now, I'm going to say a bit more about this soon, but for a moment, let's move on. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons and daughters. I mean, isn't this good news? Now, in the Bible, there are different images, different metaphors, different ways of looking at salvation, and one of the strong ones, one of the common ones, is set free from slavery, and we've looked at that. But another way to describe our salvation is through adoption. So before, we were homeless orphans. 
And then we came to Christ and we became welcomed into the family of God. And it's the sealing of our adoption, the signing off of the papers, is our conversion experience. So how does this work? I mean, what does this look like? Well, we hear the gospel, and we may have heard it 30 or 40 times, but we hear it this time, and it might be because we're in a meeting or because a friend shares with us or we're reading a book, maybe even an online presentation, but we hear the gospel, let's say, the 35th time. And then this time, the Holy Spirit, he impresses on us that it's true. The Holy Spirit saying, actually, Jesus is who he said he is, and you are in as much trouble as the Bible says you are. And we come to understand because the Holy Spirit has impressed this to us. But it doesn't stop there. The Holy Spirit then stirs us to respond. He stirs, he motivates, he impresses on us that we need to respond by asking Christ into our life. And we do. And we do. And this is why, because of the Holy Spirit's work, Paul can write in Ephesians chapter 1, towards the end of this paragraph, verse 13. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so this is why Paul was able to say that our salvation rests on the power of God. Not the power of men, but the power of God. God chose us before time. Christ died for us on the cross. The Holy Spirit impresses and stirs us to respond. I mean, that's how conversion works. That's how we are saved. Now, many of us, we get it all mixed up. We get the grammar of the gospel all muddled. And we think it's something like this. We hear the gospel and it may be the 30th time and it clicks. Why does it click? Because we are clever enough to understand that Jesus is the Son of God and we're in as much trouble as the Bible says to us. And then we think what happens is that it's our willpower that helps us to respond. The same willpower that that makes us get up or helps us get up at six o'clock in the morning for a run or the same willpower that tells us to resist those potato chips, you know? And so our willpower causes us to respond. But that's not how it works. It's not because we're clever enough and it's not because we have the willpower to do that. If it was, then our salvation would rest on the power of man. But it doesn't. It rests on the power of God. The Holy Spirit impresses on us that the gospel is true and then he stirs us to respond. Now much more could be said, but but once you get your head wrapped on around being chosen before time, being predestined, there's this wonderful source of comfort. And let me share a story that helps explain why. Now, there was this lawyer who shared a story. And as a young man, he met this nurse and they met in a church function. And he liked her. He was attracted to her. So he he got to know this young nurse. And then he realized that they had lived in the same part of town for a period of time. While he was a teenager, this lovely young nurse had been a young girl just down the road. And then it clicked. He said, ah, she's that girl. Because he remembered one day as he was going out his gate, he looked down the road and down the road was a neighbour and the neighbour had this big boat that he was sort of manhandling onto a trailer that he wanted to hitch to the back of his car. And there beside this man was this little wee girl. She must have been seven or eight. And 
and she was trying to help her dad. And this teenager thought, what a lovely wee girl. Isn't it lovely the way that she is trying to help her dad? Now, many years later, of course, they married. And the lawyer, this man, he realized that he had set his affection on this young girl before she knew it. He had set his affection on this wee girl before this girl knew that. Isn't that a wonderful understanding of what predestination is? Before time, God set his affection on you. Now, this is a mystery. It's a wonderful, grand mystery, but it's a comforting mystery that God has set his affection on you before time. That's what predestination means. Now, we're going to open up a little bit more about predestination next week when we go into a bit more depth in this passage, but that's a wonderful start, isn't it? And so, as we come to an end of this message, what have we learned? What are What have we looked at? Well, we've seen that Paul is in prison and he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. And he does so because they have this wonderful sense of shared history. Ephesus was the center of his most successful missionary endeavor. From 12 to how many? Enough to affect the whole economy. These people are on Paul's heart and he writes to encourage them. And there's this sense of mutual affection that we saw with the elders at the seaport of Miletus, this wonderful affection between them. So this is why he writes the letter. We've also seen that Paul structures his letter around the grammar of the gospel, the wealth of the church, and then the work of the church. We receive these amazing blessings from God, and then out of these blessings, we respond to live a life worthy. And finally, we've looked at what salvation means and how God chose you, how God set his affection on you from the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation. And this is the good news, tremendous news of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've touched on a mystery here, how you loved us so much from so long ago. And we just love this grammar of the gospel, how you loved us first and out of this love we respond. By your spirit, teach us, Lord, how to live lives worthy pleasing. Teach us to imitate you as our loving Heavenly Father and to serve you with joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.